Let's take a look today at Psalm 63. And again, you're welcome to, to look. I'll have this up on the screen as, as well. And this message we are calling our deepest thirst. Let me read this and then we'll look at it together for a few minutes. This is Psalm 63. And here's what we read. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. And this is the word of God. It's a pretty intense psalm. There's some really strong words happening here. And here's a picture of somebody who is thirsting, craving for something. We all know a little bit of what that's like. Now, some of you are aware that I've been training for an Olympic triathlon. And just to make it very clear, the word Olympic is not the uh, skill level of the person involved. It's just the distance involved. But I'm so glad it's called Olympic because some people think it has to do with my talent level as well. So sometimes I might keep them guessing. Uh, it happens to be next Sunday. That's the unfortunate thing for some of these as they schedule them on Sunday. So in anticipation of that, Drew will be giving Drew Trends the message next week. So uh, hopefully if all goes well, I'd be finished now. But I don't know what state I'll be in afterwards. Bill Kernitz is joining me in the process as well. And as I go through the training process, I'm not very good at hydrating or getting energy inside myself. I'm, I'm really bad at training for things. I have this idea in my head that I can do things other human beings can't, that I function in a way that no other human being does. And at some point uh, along uh, maybe a bike ride when you're 20, 30 miles into something, your body starts reminding you that you're human. And in order for you to sustain this, you actually need energy. You need hydration and that kind of stuff. So those of you who have done anything like this understand that so many of you are much wiser than I and realize that you too are a human being and you have limitations to this. But at that moment when you're maybe dehydrated and you're longing or thirsting for something, there's nothing quite like taking a cool drink of water and getting refreshed from all of your tiredness as well. And of course, it's a fitting analogy because if you're not drinking in that way, eventually you're going to shut down. You're not going to function properly. And David, who wrote this psalm, recognizes that our souls, the deepest part of who we are, we're designed to get the nourishment that we crave only from God. But we can get it in a lot of different ways, right? We, we seek for it in different things. Now, if I'm on my longest ride or whatever and I'm just craving something and I eat a bunch of Cheetos, 
I can do that. It's probably a really bad choice. I'm not going to function quite properly. I'm thirsty and I'm eating something that's, I would argue, fairly unhealthy. Uh, plus, you get the Cheeto fingers and all that kind of stuff, and it's not going to help with the bike ride. So we've been designed a certain way. David in this psalm says, you have been designed, all of us have been designed to crave and thirst. We all crave and thirst. But ultimately, the only way we can be satisfied is if we are finding the right source of nourishment and strength. That's what David says. That's what he presumes in this psalm. There was a song back in the, I guess, 80s by a guy named Rich Mullins. Some of you will recognize that name. He was from Cincinnati. We used to sing it uh, in the early days of when I had become a Christian. Oh God, you are my God. And I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning and I'll learn to walk in your ways. And step by step, you lead me and I will follow you all of my days. And that's the cry of this psalm as, as well. That's the heart of it. And the presumption that David says here, and perhaps you've already picked up on that, is that the deepest longing of our soul can only be met by God. That's what David's saying. The deepest longing... Really, all the longings that we have of our soul can only be met by God. Now, Eric, when he's given the message before, has done this very thing where he highlights certain words. It's fantastic. So I did that for me as well, to, for you today too, to see that David, as he kind of goes throughout this, uses the same Hebrew word multiple times. It's nephesh in the Hebrew, but it's soul. And David's kind of worldview about things is that there are parts of us that only last a certain length of time. In fact, a lot of what we see is only here for a certain amount of time. But there's, there's an aspect of our being, our soul, David says, that lasts forever. And that's the part he's talking about is longing for God. All the things that this world has to offer, they're very real and they matter. But they can only offer temporary satisfaction. Water, food, health, money, relationships. You know, you get a drink, it's great, but then you're thirsty again. You eat a fantastic meal, and then you get hungry. You're healthy, and then all of a sudden you're not. You get sick. You got money, and then there it goes. Right? Expenses increase as well, and relationships, they come and go too. They don't last forever. I mean, the ultimate separation is death itself which comes to us all. Everything in this world is just temporary. It's almost like a relationship of shadow and substance. And the Bible talks about this a lot. You've got things that are, they're real. I mean, there's a shadow. But it's, it's just a reflection of what's really the substance behind it. What you see is temporary, but there's an unseen eternal reality. And, and David argues that we all have this. We all have souls. The Bible as a whole argues that. And so he uses that word nephesh, soul, in verses 1, 5, 8, and 9. And David goes on to say that all of us, because we have souls, have a deep longing. This want that we have in the deepest fiber of our being and we're not always aware of this, but there are times when it becomes obvious. The things we want the most in life. Things like to love. Have somebody, and to be loved. I mean, that, those kind of things, as you age and figure out and put vocabulary and experiences together, you realize underneath this all, I have a deep aching to be loved by somebody. To be accepted as I am. 
That's the beautiful picture, isn't it? Of marriage. Sometimes when I'm doing marriage counseling, I'll talk about sowing seeds of Eden. It's one of my favorite phrases. You know, the storyline of the Bible is that God created everything good, and, and then sin entered and disrupted all these relationships. So in marriage, one of the opportunities you have is to kind of recreate Eden. Can't do it totally, but you start sowing seeds of Eden. All that shame that, that is there in, in, a, in a good marriage can slowly be chipped away, and there's a sense of safety. It's beautiful. But even in the best of marriages, it's only temporary. And it can go with a misunderstanding or health being lost, whatever the case may be. We want to love and be loved. We want to be valued or we want to add value. We long for acceptance and security and significance. We long for that. Nations are built around a longing for security. We fear anybody taking away what's here, so we'll put up borders and build a military, and you can't impose on. We have a long, deep longing to feel secure. And these deep longings are, are distorted by sin. And that really, in the Bible, is a fundamental picture of a very biblical world word called idolatry. I mean, idolatry is just a distortion of something that's really, really good. Actually, making something God. That's, it's a cheap substitute. It works, but not the way it's supposed to. It's distorted. It, that's, that's why when Jesus says you can't serve both God and money, I mean, money works as a God. It's just not a great God. It's, it's harsh. And you want more. There's never enough there, too. That's idolatry. Making something that is good, making it ultimate. Even good things like family can become like that. Family is, is, is a good thing. It's a gift from God. But that, that is, family is not your God. It can easily be that way. Certainly in our context in the suburbs as well. Money, food, drink, anything like that. Psalm 16, which I thought about uh, giving a message on, but I've been all over the map with the Psalms, has, a, has a, a sense of this. This is by David as well. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord apart from... From you, I have no good thing. That's a fascinating statement. You're my God. Apart from you, I have nothing good. Well, yeah, I've got a lot of good things, right? I mean, food is good, and family is good, and weather is good. But in an ultimate sense, you take God out of the equation, and those things are just temporary, and they don't satisfy. That's what he's saying. God is ultimate. And until I understand that, I can't be satiated, as he says, with this quenching that I have inside of me, this thirsting that is longing deep inside of my soul. That's why no matter how much money you have, you want more. No matter how much great food you have, you'll want more. No matter how good your marriage is, you want more. All the time. It's a reflection. It's real, but it's just a reflection of something that is eternal and even more substantive. And only if God is ultimate can the longings of the soul be met. And those other cravings can be put in their right order, their right perspective. You know, some, sometimes God, we've mentioned this before, people say my priority is God, and then family, and then job, and then Cincinnati Reds, and then, oh, sorry, Denver Broncos, and then something like that, too. You rank things by priority, but the biblical worldview, I would argue, has a little different sense of that. Since God, God it's, it's as if God is the center and when he's the center, all these other things emanating out, family, athletics, money, 
They're influenced by that center. Like he's the center of a wheel, and these are just the spokes. Something else can be in the center, but then it's distorted. And, and, and David's saying, I want God at the center. I want him to be the, the middle of that hub, and everything else is informed by that. He's tasted that. He's seen it. He wants that desperately. And all the other cravings get put in their right order. And David is giving a picture of how all souls have longings that ultimately can be met by God alone. Some of you are familiar with this statement. Augustine, who is a very colorful church father from a long time ago in the late 300s. He lived life large. And um, he was, but he also wrestled for the first time, even in just at least Western literature, he was uh, wrestling with inward things. And he was convicted of sin. And he tasted the grace of God. He tasted forgiveness. But he said, look, as he started doing all his writing and his confessions, maybe one of his most famous quotes, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And that's an ongoing reality. See, there may be times when we've tasted that reality and we've rested in God, and then the world arrests us away from that and starts enticing us with other things. As ultimate, these things are good. They're, they're not bad, but put in the, right, in the wrong order, they can be destructive. And when you build your life around something that can be taken away like that, and it's gone, what do you have left? Remember the context for this. David is in the desert. His circumstances around him are not good. Many people think he's running from his son, Absalom. That was one of his desert experiences. It's hard to imagine what it would be like for your very son to be chasing after you, to wanting to, wanting to eliminate you as a threat. Uh, David's very likely on the run. He's certainly in the desert. And he looks around him and all he sees is desert. And it's there that he wants to meet with God. And it's there that he can meet with God because this isn't about whether the circumstances are fitting him. This is about the deepest source of his soul, the deepest longing of his heart being met in the most terrible circumstances you can imagine. A desert with somebody chasing you down. So what does it look like to make God the thing that our souls are chasing? Or, since we've been using this language, if the deepest longings of the soul are a thirst that can only be quenched by God, then how do we draw from that well? You might not be convinced. I, I don't know. My, my only prayer for you in some senses is if there's kind of a scale here too, you're like, I don't care anything about this. I have no thirst for God. Then maybe he'd give you a little picture of why it might be a good thing to have that and then say, okay, God, give it to me. Probably a lot of us are like, I remember that time, but it, I'm not so much there. So let's, let's see what this looks like to begin cultivating that intimacy with God again. And some of you are off the rails. Doing fantastic. This is great. So just enjoy it even more. But what does it look like for people like me if I want the longing of my soul to match with David's too? How is he, how is he doing that? And we'll just take a, a moment to look at these once again highlighted, thank you, Eric, words here. And they're all of the action words that are in this psalm from beginning to end. 
A deep longing of the soul, how does that work out? So just to consider these words as well. The, the first word that he says is, I seek for you in verse 1. God, you're my God, earnestly I seek you. And he's looking for God where? In the desert. I think this is amazing. Remember, this is written while he's in the... I don't know if he has like a little scroll here in his back pocket and he rips it out or something like that is going on. Uh, but he's in the, in the desert and he's looking for God in the desert. And th this is the case, I think, for most of us. It, it's often true that the time when we'll look for God is a time when we have nowhere else to look. When so many other things around us that we trust in have been taken away... And it could be true for David, too, that he's saying, okay, I'll look for God. Or it could be on a more positive sense. He looks for God everywhere. It doesn't matter where he is. He is looking for God. He's in a desert. It seems like he could, like Psalm 13 says, where are you? I don't know. But here he's saying, I'm looking for you. And that's the posture of a heart that is looking for the deepest longings to be satisfied. God, where are you? In this, I'm looking for you. I'm, I'm aware of it. The things that matter to you, you look for. I mean, I've, I've seen this before too. If you have a love for a certain sort of vehicle, you're looking for that car on the road. You could be next to somebody who doesn't care at all about cars. Like, Did you see that McLaren go by? What, what is that? What is a McLaren? What, you don't care about McLarens? Because it matters to you. And David says, the deepest longing of my soul, God, I'm looking for him everywhere, even in the midst of a desert. Acts 17, it's one of my favorite verses in 23 through 24. It's such a great picture of God's movement of peoples. He says, he's put you, basically, this is a paraphrase, you are exactly where you're supposed to be living at the exact time period you're supposed to be living. I know some of you want to live back in Laura Ingalls' wilder days or maybe in the future, you know, when there's spaceships flying around or whatever the case may be, but here you are, and it's absolutely no mistake. God's determined the exact time and the exact place you should live. Why? Since he did this so that you may reach out and find him, though he's not far away from each one of you. And the context, I think, for reaching out and finding him is God's gathered people together. As we'll see in a few weeks, obviously creation screams out there's a God, but who is that God? How do we get to know him better? We do that in community as we apply his word. And David here is writing some of that word. He's seeking God. There's no mistake. So the posture of a heart that's looking for its deepest longings to be satisfied is one that's seeking, one that's looking. And then he uses these words, thirst and crave. I mean, those are, those are good words. It says, my body longs for it. But the, the better translation of others that I've read is really craves. You crave something. You know what that's like. Do you ever feel like I just have a craving for black raspberry chip ice cream, skyline chili, um, biryani? Uh, dim sum. Whatever the case may be. You're, this is his picture. He's craving. His soul, the deepest part of his being, is craving. Now look, what I would uh, suggest to you is that you recognize that the cravings that you do have, the ones I even just gave you an example of, they're pushing you from shadow to substance. 
If this is new to you, for example, the next time you have a craving for something, just recognize that's a, that's a real craving and it can be satisfied. You go, you go get that or whatever. Maybe it's satisfied. But that craving is really designed to point you to something deeper and more eternal. There's something that you're craving even more than that. And it's a picture driving you from shadow to substance, if that makes sense. Even if you don't understand this. I mean, with anything you had to get the job you really wanted, you feel so grateful for that. That's just a picture, a shadow of the substance. That God is the one who meets your deepest needs. It's pointing us to something deeper. And David recognizes that. Jesus knew this when he was in the wilderness and he was fasting and praying and Satan comes to him and he tempts him. He says, take this stone and turn it into bread. And Jesus uses God's word to say, I'm going to live by God's word. Now, he did need food. He was fully human. But that human food was just pointing to something deeper, the craving that can only be met by God's word. That's the real food. He says, my food is to do the will of God. And then he sits down and has a fish dinner because he's 100% human, but he realizes these, these dinners are simply pointing me to a deeper thirst in my soul, a deeper hunger that only God himself can meet. And David has seen that as well. In fact, he has some experiences of it, you see, because he says, see and behold. He, he says that right there. I've seen you in the sanctuary, beheld your power and glory. So this is kind of a past tense thing. He's had encounters with God before. He's there in the wilderness and he's looking back on that and he's seen that God is who he says he is. He's, he's encountered his presence. He's beheld God's power and his glory. That is the, the acts, the things that he's done, but just the substance of his being, the glory, the heaviness, the weightiness. And glory, by the way, is often contrasted with idolatry in the Bible. Idolatry is just kind of a cheap substitute, and glory is the real thing. Do any of you purchase a watch that looks like a Rolex? And it's, it's maybe one, two, three, four, five bucks. But it's not really a Rolex, Right? I mean, if somebody knows and you take it to a jeweler and they, and they say, look, how much is this worth? They say, I don't know, 30 cents? You still got ripped off. <laughs> but if you have the real thing that's heavy and that's weighty, that's substantive, that's God. You may have had some encounters in life that are fantastic. Maybe the highest pleasures, the greatest thrills, they're just tiny little tastes of the power and the glory of God. The best this world has to offer. It's just light by comparison. And that's why people who've tasted and seen that God is, is powerful and he's glorious, they're craving for that. They want to encounter God in that way. Even in the midst of the desert, he's seen his needs met. He's experienced God's forgiveness. And don't we long for that? He's experienced God's goodness, God's grace. He's seen it in the experience of others, and he's known it in God's character. That word, if you're around for very long, when you're reading the Old Testament, shows up. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Your hesed, your covenant love. God is committed fully to you, even in the midst of your mess. He says, I'm your God, and I am for you always to the end. David's encountered that reality. He's seen and he's beheld that. So this is part of what it looks like 
to draw from the well uh, and get that thirst quenched. And David here uses a, a word a ton of times here too. It's kind of all the same thing, glorify, praise, sing, and, and rejoice. You'll see that in verses 3, 4, 5, 7, and, and 11. I mean, David was a musician, so it's probably easier for him to do that. I know not all of you are songwriters, and some of you maybe not even in, in music. Some, some of us draw near to God in music. Uh, may, maybe, maybe for you, you're like, I'll show up to church as soon as they're done singing. And, and some of you might be like, as soon as they're done singing, I'm out of here. Right? So we're all a little bit different for David than what's drawing him into worship. And this is, this is kind of bad news for you if you don't like to sing. This is a, a very common response. We are called to worship God. So let other people enter into the reality. Sometimes I'll just sit and listen, especially if the keys weigh, weigh like, whoa, it's all out there too. And, and let others sing on my behalf. Enter into the emotion and the reality of the moment and the, the content of it too. David can't help but translate in his wilderness experience a song of joy. He's lifting up his hands. He's very interactive with this too. And he's recognizing God in the midst of all this crazy wilderness. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to sing. Dude, sometimes the very act of doing that draws us into a deeper encounter with God. That's just how it goes. Sometimes you do just have to go through the motions. So for him, it's actual music, but there's a more inclusive expression of this as well. I mean, there is, there is a reality. We're called to gather into worship together in community, but I know some of you, when you're hiking in the mountains all alone, you sense God's presence maybe a little bit more than you ever might at this moment right now. It's, it's a both and. It's not an either or. You know, there are some people like Eric Liddell, just an old example, but this guy who was an Olympian, and he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. How strange is that? This guy feels God's pleasure when he runs? That's a punishment for most people. But somehow, in his pain, he feels the glory of God because that's how he was designed. He loves to do that. So there's, there's kind of a broader application to this, but... Wherever you are, and whatever it is that you kind of naturally enjoy, that's an opportunity to see that God alone can satisfy. Because even when he's running, and if he sets an Olympic record, there's always a faster one to run. It'll never quite be there. So his soul needs to be satisfied in God. And that's part of what he believed, and part of what David believed as well. In verse 6, if you're interested in kind of cultivating this reality too, filling the deepest longings of the soul. He says, look, I remember and I think about God. This is quite interesting. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Do any of you have sleepless nights? Does anybody have a hard time sleeping here too? I mean, David apparently had, and it's, it's understandable. He was on high alert. You don't typically sleep. I, I started watching uh, alone this thing on history too where they drop people off in the middle of the wilderness something like that, and you slowly drop out. And I think down to there's one like one person left and you get $500,000 or something like that. It's just the very, very first season, but there's, there's a, bears visiting this guy's camp. They have no weapons. He taps out. He's got a wife and kids at home. And another guy leaves because there's coyotes circling around his tent too. And, and they're, they're like, do you think they're getting a good night's sleep? They're not, I guarantee it. David was like that too. He doesn't know if someone's attacking. And so he 
part of how he does that is like he takes the fears and he translates them into prayer. I'm going to remember you through the watches of the night when I can't sleep. I, I try this sometimes. I have trouble sleeping at times too, and it's difficult because it takes a little bit of work uh, to do. But it, it does rightly give a perspective on things. And oftentimes I'll even ask, okay, Lord, I'm up at 3 a.m. Who do you want me to pray for? Who's he going to drop on my heart to lift up? In my better moments, that happens. It's not always like that, but David here is saying, this is how we, you know, you're awake at night, so leverage that to, to draw your soul close to God. And in those moments, he remembers what God has done, and he thinks. He shifts his thoughts to God. There's a beautiful picture of Paul in the New Testament saying, take every thought captive for Christ. You have a thought? Just kind of take it there and look at it a little bit and translate that maybe into a prayer. I, that's one of the reasons I love a praying life so much for my own prayer life, Paul Miller. I don't know if any of you who would call yourselves you know, walk, people who walk with God, you sit down, you have great intents to pray, and you're like a big God list, and you're thinking about and then your mind just wanders to something, and, to, and then you're like, Ugh! Okay, sorry, God, I'm going to focus on you now, too. And then all of a sudden, it's going here again, too. That's me. Uh, adult ADHD, many people have argued I have that. So what, what I do is I'll just, okay, find what was helpful. I'll say, okay, my, my, my mind is, is, is going in this direction, so I'll pray for that. Instead of just beating myself up repeatedly, because I'm supposed to be praising God for his glory and majesty, and I keep thinking about the shopping list. All right, Lord. I pray for the shopping list, and I thank you that you give me the basic bill and, and deal with that. David seems to do something similar. He's remembering, he's thinking where his thoughts are going, and he translates those. And he's cultivating and tra training himself in the desert to satiate his deepest thirst. And then he says in verse 8, and this is also very picturesque, verse 8, I cling to you. I mean, look what verse 8 says, my soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. This is another picture of desperation where the central part of his being is just holding on to God. When, I, when you, the word cling, it's, it's kind of a fun word to use. I mean, I don't know what comes to your mind there too, but I picture a little kid just holding on to a, a dad or a mom's leg. This happens a lot for me. I come on strong to kids too. I mean, I, I, I definitely, I love them and I want to say hi but, uh, but sometimes it can be a little too much. And so maybe a kid's clinging to a, a, a leg saying, oh my goodness, who is this guy? Get away from me. Because it's like, there's, this is a safe person. This leg is safe. I've had a kid attached to my leg who's not mine before, and they look up and they're just horrified. So they go in the, a different direction, right? And David's saying, I'm clinging, my soul's clinging to God. He's the one who's safe for me. And that maybe feels a little intuitive. Really, what does that look like? It's all we're talking about. That in your moment of desperation, where do you go for safety? A sense of, it's going to be okay. Even when, when somebody's coming against me, I take my fears, and where do I take them? He says, take them to God. That's, that's, that's how his soul, he's trained his soul to make that his default place of safety. He's seen that God is a safe place, that his right hand upholds him. He's solid, stable, real, safe. And then finally, he's learning 
to trust God too. And that may seem a little strange, these verses here too, because there are other people seeking his life. But what's interesting about that is that they who seek my life, that's actually soul in the Hebrew. They're seeking his soul. They're seeking, they're seeking to take the thing that matters most to him, the deepest part of who he is. And that's not sh- something that should be going on. And so David realizes that and believes and trusts that justice will be done. He wants them to see the emptiness and the weight of chasing after the wrong things. He's entrusting to God a just punishment. He doesn't do it lightly, obviously. David is also aware that he too deserves such a fate. If it weren't for the forgiveness secured ultimately by Christ himself. Just as we all have souls, we all fall short of God's glory. And this is a New Testament thing here, but you see it happening here as well. He's talking about beholding God's glory. Who can, who's, who can do that? Who's worthy of it? We find in the, old, in the New Testament, no, none of us is. We all fall short of God's glory. And we're on the hook for a destination that our soul, a soul apart from God. But the good news of the gospel, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. For those who seek him, right? For those who call on his name. For those who trust in him. Say, I realize I have a deep longing in my soul. I've been chasing in the wrong direction. Empty cisterns. That deep craving that I have can only be met in the person of Christ. (laughs) When John writes his first gospel, he says, it's pretty amazing. When Jesus shows up, he says, we've seen him. We've seen his glory in the person of Christ, in the person and the work of Jesus. That's where our souls are being driven. And until we really grasp that reality and trust in him, we'll be on a fruitless search. I mean, these are good things that God's given us. There's something called common grace. Even if you reject all this, every good gift you have comes from the Father of heavenly lights above, whether you recognize it or not. But it's only temporary. There's a deeper longing of the soul that can only be satisfied. And the one who showed up and he said, I'm the living water. If your soul thirsts, which it does, to this woman who comes to him in the desert and says, I've been trying to chase satisfaction in security, in relationships. He says, yeah, you've had a lot of those. If you really want for your soul to be filled, to be satiated, to be quenched, can only be done with the person standing right in front of you. I'm the living water. I'm the bread of life. And these words that Jesus uses are there intentionally. We all can identify with that. And we all know that we have a deeper need. And we're longing for that to be met somewhere. And David is saying it's found in the person of Christ. David is what we call a type of Christ. An imperfect picture of the one to come. We already saw in Psalm 2 this king, this idea of a king. But he was an imperfect king. Jesus is the perfect king. And now you know what that's like to thirst and to hunger. And it's great and it's satiated for a moment, but there's a deeper hunger and thirst that can only be met in Christ. And when I read Psalm 63, that's, that's 
what comes across pretty clearly. God, you are my God. This is so personal. This isn't just something that you dress up and come to church on a Sunday. This is all of life. And he uses all of life markers. He talks about the present in verses 1 through 8, the past in 2 through 3 and 6 through 7, and the future in 4, 9 through 11. As far as I know, that's everything, right? Past, present, and future. All of that together is designed for us to have a longing that can only be satisfied in the person of Christ. That's the basic message of the whole Bible. But Paul and, as we've seen, David are working that out in space and time in their lives. So wherever you are on that spectrum, I hope you push a little bit farther. There's a gal named Clara T. Williams who actually was also from Ohio. So we're featuring Ohio musicians today. Rich Mullins and then Clara Williams. Uh, she, she was late 1800s, early 1900s too. And, and she recognized this reality. And she wrote a song called Satisfied. Here are some of the words to it. All my life long I had panted for a drink from, com- from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within, feeding on the filth around me till my strength was almost gone, longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Poor I was and sought for riches, something that would satisfy, but the dust I gathered around me only mocked my soul's sad cry. I mean, here's somebody who's doing some introspection, right? <laughs> and some of us get to that moment, and sometimes we may not get there until we're in the desert, until you're stripped and robbed of all your natural resources. And you say, I've got to do some soul searching now. Apparently that's where she was. Well of water, ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Hallelujah, he's found me. The one my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies all my longings through his blood, and now I'm saved. I think David would like that psalm if he was able to sing that hymn in the desert as well. It's very, very similar to this too. And I don't know where you are this morning on that scale. If, if this doesn't conjure up a sense of yes, that is what I long for. I pray that it would at some point, that God's spirit would ignite a passion, a desire in you, that you'd at least see that the cravings I have are temporary. Is there something more? I believe the answer is yes. And that we're being driven to a place where we find that deep satisfaction that can only be found in Christ, who really came, who really lived the perfect life, who died on our behalf. And he says, come and drink from the well of grace that I've secured. Father, we thank you for the moment 